Two people, uh, let's make them identical twins, two identical twins turn up to the same service at the same church on the same Sunday. Now that particular Sunday happens to be an outreach Sunday, an outreach service where a basic gospel message is given by the associate pastor. It's an excellent sermon. So clear. So interesting, so insightful, so thought-provoking. And the jokes are hilarious. Both twins hear the same gospel message preached. They've got the same hearing, same IQ, the same interest at being at church that particular, that particular Sunday evening. At the end of the gospel talk, one of the twins prays the prayer. He repents of his sin, he puts his trust in Jesus as the only one who can forgive him and bring him in to a relationship with God. The other twin, he leaves church that evening thinking it's nothing more than a whole lot of hogwash. Two twins, one scenario, two very different outcomes. How would you account for the different outcomes for the two twins? How would you account for the different responses? Well, over the last couple of weeks here at church, we've been given a whole lot of thought to the how and why of salvation, haven't we? And if you've been taking notes, then maybe you would come to the conclusion that it was because one of those twins had been elected to salvation and the other one hadn't. Maybe that's the, the answer that you would come to. Maybe that's how you would account for the different outcomes for the two twins. If so, then I'm afraid to say you're only partly right. Okay, you're only partly right. Because you see, election wouldn't be enough to tell the whole story. So you can elect someone to do something, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to do it, does it? You know, on the 24th of November last year, the Australian people, we elected a new Prime Minister. We elected Kevin Rudd to be our Prime Minister. But can you imagine if the next day, the 25th of November, Kevin Rudd, Kevin Rudd woke up and read the paper and went, What? What are you people talking about? I don't want to be your Prime Minister. I never wanted to be your Prime Minister. What are you people talking about? What would we have done then? Oh, I guess we could put a gun against his head and say, you know, come on, Kev, get on with the job. We could force him to do it against his will, couldn't we? That's one option. Alternatively, he has to change his mind. He has to want to do it. What are the two alternatives? We either force him to do it or he has to choose to do it according to his own will, his own free will. Now, here in Australia, we're a, a fairly civil bunch. And, of course, we're never going to force somebody to be prime minister if they don't want to. So at the end of the day, I guess we would have to say that the decisive factor in Kevin Rudd becoming prime minister was his own free will, his own choice to say, yes, OK, I'll be your prime minister. That was the decisive factor. So if we go back now to the question of the two identical twins, what was the decisive factor in them becoming a, one of them becoming a Christian? You know, if election wasn't enough, what was the decisive factor? Did God force him to become a Christian? Or did he do it, you know, because of his own free will, because he wanted to, because of his own choice? What do you reckon? Well, remember that the, the remonstrance the remonstrants. They were a group of Christians. They lived in the early 1600s and they gave a whole lot of thought to the how and why of salvation too. 
And they concluded that the ultimate factor in a person becoming a Christian was their own choice. It was their own free will. According to their understanding, God, he'd never force a person to become a Christian. He's, he's too much of a gentleman for that. He's too civil for that. Now, according to the remonstrance, what God does is he comes to all people through his Holy Spirit and then he tries essentially to, to persuade them to put their trust in Jesus. But then at the end of the day, it's left to each individual to choose for themselves. Either, yes, I will become a Christian, or no, I won't. The remonstrants, they saw it happening in the Bible. In places like Acts chapter 7, verse 51, where, where Stephen, who was about to be stoned to death, said to the Jews who were about to stone him to death, you stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you're just like your father's, you always resist the Holy Spirit. See, the remonstrants, they saw biblical evidence that people really are able to resist the work of the Holy Spirit. That God doesn't force his saving grace into the lives of people against their will. That ultimately they can resist him. Ultimately they have a choice to say yes or no. What do you think of that view? What do you think of that view? What do you... Do you think the remonstrants were right? Do you think they were on to something? Is this the answer to the question of our twins? That ultimately it all came down to their personal choice. That's why one twin believed, that's why the other one didn't. What do you think? Well, in the early 1600s in Holland, at an official church meeting called the Synod of Dort, this teaching of the remonstrants on salvation was out and out rejected. It was decided instead that the ultimate decisive factor in a person becoming a Christian was not their own will, but it was the sovereign will of God. The name that the Synod of Dort gave to that teaching was irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace being what the I stands for in TULIP. TULIP being what we have been studying here at church over the last few weeks in this sermon series. The Synod of Dort concluded that the decisive factor in a person becoming a Christian was irresistible grace. But what did they mean by that? What is irresistible grace? Well, according to the Synod of Dort, irresistible grace, it's the idea that when God sends his Holy Spirit to save someone, no one can resist him. No one can resist him. He's irresistible. In other words, when God sends his Holy Spirit to save someone, he always does what he sets out to do. Always, without fail. If a person is elected to salvation, they must be saved. They will be saved. But don't be confused with what the Synod of Dort meant by irresistible grace. In some ways, it's a bit of an unfortunate title that they gave to it. Because I guess it almost infers the idea that, that God causes people to do something that they don't want to do. You know, a bit like a strong man coming and kidnapping a small kid. You know, he can't be resisted. That's not what the Synod of Dort meant when they referred to irresistible grace. It's not the idea of, of God dragging people kicking and screaming into heaven, okay? No, by irresistible grace, 
The Synod of Dort simply meant that when God sends his Holy Spirit to save somebody, they will most definitely be saved. No ifs, no buts. Maybe a better term than irresistible grace would be um, certain grace or, or effective grace. But hang on a sec. What, what if the Holy Spirit comes to somebody and then, and then they just don't want to be saved? Wouldn't that be a little bit like us forcing somebody to be a prime minister if, you know, when they really don't want to be? Well, here's the thing. Here's the thing you've got to understand. According to the Synod of Dort, when the Holy Spirit comes to a person to change them, he always does it in a way that people like. When the Holy Spirit comes to a person to change them, he always does it in a way that people like. See, I guess the, the Synod of Dort would describe it a bit like this. They would say that we human beings, we are by our very nature people who, who love to spend our days down at the rubbish dump, you know, eating uh, rotten, mouldy, wormy, mucky food that we happen to find there. We're totally depraved. That's our nature. That's what we love to do. But you see, when the Holy Spirit comes and works his saving grace in us, it's possible for God to, to change us, to change our nature, to change our makeup, to change it in such a way that we come to love caviar and um, filet mignon and creme brulee and other fancy sounding stuff. According to the Synod of Dort, we Christians, we once loved sin, and everything that would bring us unhappiness and eternal punishment. But through irresistible grace, God, he, he didn't leave our hearts unchanged, no. He doesn't end up dragging, dragging us kicking and screaming into heaven, no. He regenerates us, he gives us a new heart. He changes our nature in such a way that we come to truly love God. We're truly sorry for our sins. He changes us so that we now hate the things that we used to do. Now we call Jesus brother and Lord. Now, for us, Christianity is exciting. Now we freely, eagerly seek God. So according to the Synod of Dort, is the decisive factor in a person becoming a Christian their, their own free will? Well, no, it's the sovereign will of God. But does that mean God ever goes against the will of a person in saving them? Well, no again. Because when the Holy Spirit comes to a person to change them, he always does it in a way that people like. Did you get that? Okay, we've got these two views. The remonstrance, the remonstrance, the decisive, where the decisive factor in us becoming a Christian is our own choice, our own free will. And then there's the synod of Dort, where it's ir the irresistible grace of God. That's the decisive factor. It's God's will. So who are we to believe? Are we to believe the remonstrance or are we to believe the synod of Dort? Well, of course, we're to believe neither, are we? Because we're not Romanstrians, nor are we Dortians. We are, we are Christians. And as such, we are called to believe the word of Christ, the Bible. So that's what we're going to do now. We're going to have a look now and see what the Bible has to say on this matter. But friends, as we do... I think that ultimately what we'll see is that it was the Synod of Dort that got it right. 
that ultimately the decisive factor in our salvation, it's not our will, but the will of God who works his irresistible grace in us. Let's look now at what the Bible has to say on the matter. I've got four main points from the Bible. First point, the Bible says that we can't choose salvation. The Bible says that we can't choose salvation. It tells us that before we were saved, we were spiritually dead, dead, Okay, totally depraved, spiritually dead. Romans 3 puts it this way. There is no unrighteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There you go. That was you before you were saved, before you became a Christian, spiritually dead. You see, how can something that is dead do that thing which is necessary to have life? Expecting someone who's spiritually dead to put their faith in Jesus. Well, it's a bit like having, having a corpse laying up here on the platform. You know, a dead corpse. And in its hand is a syringe. And in the syringe is, is a life-giving potion. Now, all the, all the corpse has to do is inject itself with this life-giving potion and it will come alive again. But it's not going to, is it? No, Why? Because it's not in its nature to be able to do that. It can't do that. Well, so it is. For we, when we were spiritually dead, we could not do for ourselves what was necessary to have spiritual life. We could never choose Jesus. We were spiritually dead. It's not in our nature. No, we needed God to come and work a miracle in us so that we could choose Jesus. You see it in the, uh, in the example of Lydia in the Bible, in the book of Acts. Paul, he had been preaching to a group of women down by a river. One of them them was named Lydia. Now you listen to how it is that she became a Christian. In Acts 16.14 where we read, The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. See what it took for Lydia to believe the gospel? It took the Lord opening her heart. It took a miracle. She couldn't have done it by herself. She didn't do it by herself. So here we have a tick for for the synod of Dort, a tick for irresistible grace. Secondly, secondly, the Bible actually denies that people have anything to do with their salvation. In Romans 9, 16, where Paul is speaking of how it is that people are saved, he comes right out and he says it. He says, it does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. No, our choice in the decision to be saved, completely irrelevant. Well, you think of the way that the Bible uses all that picture language to describe our salvation. Did you know that the Bible describes our salvation, or us now as Christians, as having new birth, as having been resurrected, as as being new creations? All of that picture image picture images, they show that God never sought our opinion in saving us. Here, let me explain. Take, for example, the picture language of new birth. New birth. I'm sure that you know that in the Bible, Christians are called born again. You, you knew that? Um, look with me at John 3, 8, where Jesus described our Christians as born of the Spirit. He said, the wind blows wherever it pleases, So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Christians, you here tonight, you've been born of the Spirit. Born again. Now, let me ask, have you ever heard of anybody 
refusing to be born? Of course not. I mean, can you imagine the conversation in the maternity ward? Okay, darling, it's time to come out now. No, leave me alone. I want to stay in here. Doesn't happen, does it? We're not asked our opinion when it comes to birth. It's ridiculous. The biblical picture of new birth that shows we had no choice in us becoming Christians. Or you take the biblical picture of resurrection. In uh, Romans 6.13, Paul says to Christians, Offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Christians, you have been brought from death to life. You've been resurrected in a sense, haven't you? Now, do you think you had any opinion in that? Do you think God really asks what people's choice is you know, in, in, in raising them from the dead? Can you imagine Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus? Saying, Lazarus, come out from the dead, come out from the tomb. And a voice from inside saying, no, leave me here. I like being dead. Go away. Leave me alone. And Jesus was never going to be frustrated in giving him life. The biblical picture of Christians being brought from death to life, it shows we had no choice in becoming Christians. Well, you take the biblical picture of new creation. In 2 Corinthians 5.17 we read, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Christians, you are new creations. You know, just like everything in the beginning was created by God. So we have been recreated by him. We're new creations. Now to the best of my knowledge, nothing in creation has been created on the basis of its own approval. Can you imagine it? And on the first day, God said, let there be light. But the light said, I'm sorry, you know, I've got a better offer on today. Come back on the sixth day and I'll see, you know, if I can fit you in then. Of course not. Ridiculous. Nothing has ever been created on the basis of its approval. Well, in spiritual creation, it's exactly the same. God spiritually recreates us according to his own will, not ours. Our choice irrelevant in salvation. So here we have another tick for the sin of Dort, for irresistible grace. Thirdly, and this is a similar point to the last one, thirdly, we can't resist God's choice to save us. God's saving work in us is irresistible. In John chapter 6, verse 44, we hear Jesus say, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. You see that word draw? It's the same word used of the apostle Peter, uh, drawing in his fishing net in John chapter 21. It's the same word used of of, uh, Peter drawing out his sword in John chapter 18. You know, like a fishing net is drawn passively. Like a, a sword is drawn passively. So we were drawn to God passively. He drew us to himself passively. We could not resist. But wait there, what about the Bible references noted by the remonstrants? You know the ones, uh, like the one we saw earlier, where we see people resisting the Holy Spirit. What about verses like that? Remember Acts 7.51? Remember Stephen, uh, where he told the Jews that they always resisted the Holy Spirit? What are we to do with that? Okay, here's the thing. 
You see, no one denies that it's possible to resist the Holy Spirit. No one denies that it's possible to resist the Holy Spirit. We see it in the Bible all the time. God gives his commands, God gives his appeals to people, and then people resist them. They say no. In fact, the whole history of, the, of Israel in the Old Testament is one big, long story of resistance to the Holy Spirit. But the biblical teaching is that, when God, that God is always sovereign and that whenever he wants to, God can overcome resistance. That's what he does when he chooses to save someone. That's what Paul taught in Romans 9, causing his opponent to ask, then why does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? See, that's irresistible grace. When the Holy Spirit comes to save someone, he always does what he sets out to do. We can't resist God's choice to save us. It's another tick for irresistible grace. Fourth and finally, in the Bible we learn that ultimately we don't resist God's choice to save us. We don't resist God's choice to save us. You see, here's the truly marvellous thing about irresistible grace. God, he could have forced us to become Christians against our wills. Like I guess we could force someone to be a prime minister against their will. But here's the thing, God doesn't do that. God never works that way. No, when God saves us, he always does it in a way that people like. He never saves us in a brutal, forceful way. He never drags us kicking and screaming into heaven. No, God in his sovereignty and in his kindness, he opens our eyes to the things of God and we go, yes, I want that. Take me out of this rubbish dump. Give me the filet mignon. In fact, even the concept that God would force us to believe against our will, it's a contradiction in terms, surely. How can you believe something and not believe it at the same time? doesn't work, doesn't make sense. Contradiction in terms. Now, God really is a gentleman. And he has ordered things so that when we become Christians... We really want to be Christians. We love being Christians. We love God. We, we love people. We love what God has done for us. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'm, I'm yet to meet a Christian who hates God and doesn't want to go to heaven to be with him forever. Writing to Christians, the Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter 1, 8-9. He said, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the gold of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The simple fact is, when God does his saving work in us, in us we don't resist him, because we don't want to. There's another tick for irresistible grace. Friends, I think that when we consider all that the Bible has to say on the how and the why of salvation that we can conclude that ultimately the, the Synod of Dort got it right. That God really does save us through his irresistible grace. Why the different outcomes for the twins in our original story? Why did one become a Christian and the other not? Well, we know from the Bible that ultimately it's because the Holy Spirit has come to one twin and has drawn him irresistibly 
to belief in Jesus as his saviour. Ultimately, one twin was saved because of God's irresistible grace in that man's life. And if that was true for him, as it is true for us, then I think we need to think about the implications that that has in our lives. I want to finish this talk this evening by offering you four implications that I see arising out of irresistible grace. Implication number one. Firstly, I believe that we need to be filled with thankfulness. Filled with thankfulness. You know, I hope this evening that you have seen that you would never, ever have become a Christian had God not irresistibly drawn you to belief in Jesus Christ. Friend, you would still be dead in your sins, still totally depraved, hell-bound. Now look at you. You love God, you love his ways, you love his people. You've received the riches of heaven and all this. God alone, in all this, God alone has been the decisive factor. Him alone, not you, God. And then, on top of that, to think that not only has he done this, but he's, he's not done it by force, he's not done it against your will, but in a way that you have found good and pleasing. You know, he has he's cast his loving bands around you and then he has drawn you irresistibly to himself. He, he's wooed you. He's won you over. What a good God we have. How thankful we ought to be to him. Implication number two. I believe that irresistible grace gives us a real hope for our non-Christian friends and family. What a tragedy it is when uh, there's people that we love and they just refuse to follow Jesus. Do you have those people in your lives? I know many of you do. I've got them in mind too. It's a little bit like speaking to a brick wall sometimes, isn't it? And um, Sometimes it's just faced with hostility. I know it pains you and it pains me to see loved ones so close to the gospel, so stuck in their ways of thinking, so committed to lifestyles that just seem to have no room for Jesus Christ. Well, friend, I believe that this biblical teaching of irresistible grace must fill us with hope. Why? Because ultimately it teaches us that when God chooses someone, it does not depend one iota on that person's own opinion. It's true, isn't it, that from our perspective, people, they, can seem, to, they seem to be just so hard-hearted, they'll never become Christians. From God's perspective, they're easy pickings. You take the Apostle Paul from our second Bible reading this evening. You remember? Remember how opposed he was to Jesus? But when God chose him and drew him to himself, there was nothing Paul could do, was there? He ended up one of the most committed, one of the most joyful Christians of all time. You don't think God could do the same thing in the life of your loved one? Of course he can. You know what this doctrine, this teaching of irresistible grace causes me to do? It draws me to prayer, drives me there, drives me to be praying for my non-Christian loved one, drives me to keep telling them the gospel, no matter how close they seem. Because ultimately I know that it is God who can change even the hardest of hearts. 
implication number three. I just want to take this opportunity to correct what I think has been a bit of a misunderstanding. Heard it a couple of times over the last couple of weeks, you know, in the teaching on unconditional election and on limited atonement. Um, I've heard it several times by several people saying, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. What about if someone genuinely wants to believe in Jesus and they're not elected? Or Jesus hasn't actually effectually died for them? You know, it's just not fair. If you're still thinking this way, please listen to this very carefully. Here's the thing. Anybody, absolutely anybody, who asks God for salvation through Jesus will get it. Okay, did you get that? Anybody who asks God for salvation through Jesus will get it. Remember what Jesus said in John 6, 44. No one can come to the, me unless the Father who sends me draw, send, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at that last day. You see, the biblical teaching is that no one can want salvation through Jesus unless he has first been drawn through God's irresistible grace. Any desire that you've seen in your friends, your loved ones, that seems to be a desire for them to be saved... Well, it's come from the Holy Spirit. And what do we know about the Holy Spirit and the way he works in people's lives? He always sets out to do, he always does what he sets out to do. You see, anybody who asks for, to ask God for salvation through Jesus will get it. Nobody is left behind who wants salvation. Fourth and final implication. This is actually a word of caution, uh, a word of caution to anybody here this evening who's not yet a Christian. You're not a Christian. It's a warning to you not to fall into a rationalistic trap. Okay, here's the thing. Time and time again this evening, you've heard me say that nobody is ultimately saved because of their own choice, that we're ultimately saved because of God's irresistible grace. And that's absolutely true. That's not my idea. That comes from the Bible itself. But friend, please don't ever fall into the rationalistic trap of thinking that since it all does depend on God, that you've got no reason to put your faith in Jesus. Okay, please don't sit there thinking, well, I might as well just put my feet up. Wait and see if the Holy Spirit comes to me with his irresistible grace because ultimately there's nothing that I can do to save myself. Friend, that is wrong thinking. The Bible never leads you to think that way. It doesn't allow for that kind of thinking. No, the Bible comes to you with only one command. Okay, you ready for it? The Bible comes to you with one command. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. Put your trust in him. Now, if you hear that command and you do believe then you can know from the rest of the Bible, from the things we've seen tonight, that it's because of God's irresistible grace working in you. But the thing that you must do right now is believe. Believe. God wants you to. God commands you to. And if you do, then make sure you don't forget to thank him for causing you to. In fact, we're going to come to before God now in prayer and we're going to thank him for his irresistible grace. Please join me in prayer.
Father God, we want to thank you now that though we were once dead in our sins, you gave us new life, you made us new creations, that the initiative was all yours. Father, we praise you for your power in saving us and we praise you for your kindness, doing it in such a way that pleased us to think that we now sit here tonight rejoicing that we know you, rejoicing at the prospect of spending the rest of eternity with you in heaven. Our Father, we think of our non-Christian loved ones, maybe even non-Christians here this evening. Father, we know that you use our prayers and so we pray that you would be merciful to them in the same way you've been merciful to us giving them the gift of repentance and faith, giving them the gift of eternal life with you, giving them those gifts you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.